Lord, we thank you so much for who you are, for all that you've done for us. Lord, we pray that this morning as we look at your word, that we would learn and that we would grow, Lord. I pray that the words that come out of my mouth would be exactly what you want. In your name, amen. You be seated. I'd just like to start off this morning by saying it is such a blessing to be married that when, I, when I'm preaching, I have this tendency right before I'm about to preach that I start questioning everything that I've thought of, everything that's going through and kind of going through my mind. And so this morning I'm talking to my wife and uh, I'm telling her this and she just looks at me and she goes, you are not that important that you can screw up what God wants to be said. And it's extremely humbling because it's true. But in my mind, I sit here and I say, well, if I don't convey this a good way, all is lost. You guys wasted your time coming to church this morning. And so this morning, if it's a great sermon, give glory to God. If it's a terrible sermon, blame God, okay? Because I'm just preaching what I think he's put on my heart. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke 16. In all reality, the reason I chose this parable is because it's confusing, And that sounds really weird. Why would you pick to preach on a parable that's confusing? And it's because whenever I preach, I've said multiple times, you guys get about 30 minutes, 30 to 40 minutes of a sermon that is probably anywhere from 12 to 16 hours of prep. So when it comes to preaching, I probably get more than what you guys do. And so when I read something and it doesn't make sense, Preaching forces me to actually study it and not just be like, oh, well, I'll move on to something else because I need to know what I think it believes or I think I need to know what it means. And so that's what we're looking at this morning. And there's always a fear of when we talk about money, there's this fear as a pastor that you're going to think I'm up here asking for money, that our offering's not good enough, that we have, you know, all these type of things. I can honestly stand up here this morning and say that was not on my heart. We have no building projects right now. You guys have been wonderful that we've been meeting our budget even through all of this stuff. So I hope that we can just sit this morning and see what God has. So we're going to look at, um, we're going to read the whole parable and then I'm going to kind of break it down verse by verse. So it's Luke 16, starting in verse one. It says, he also said to his, to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down and quickly write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who, is very faith, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in very much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that, 
which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So for you, I I don't know about me, but when I first read this parable, there's a few things that jump out that you're just like, what is going on? What is Jesus trying to say here? And we're going to look at those, but I think before we do that, we've got to first look at who this is being told to. So if you look at verse 1, it says, he also said to the disciples. So we see this is a parable in a long list of parables where Jesus is just continually telling these stories to his disciples. But there's another group that he's also talking to. And that's if, if you look in verse 14, it says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. So imagine this image of what's going on. Jesus is sitting standing, however he's teaching his disciples, they're all sitting together, they're watching him, they're learning, and there's this other group of religious leaders kind of standing off to the side, almost trying to act like they're not listening, but they're eavesdropping. You ever done that where you're kind of off to the side and you can hear partially what a conversation's happening? So you're focused on what's happening, but you don't want it to look like you are. So those are the two groups that Jesus is speaking to. And I actually think when you look at this parable, you're going to see he's speaking more to the religious people, to the Pharisees, to them, than he is to his actual disciples. That we can, and when we look at the parable in that light, it kind of opens some things up. So going through the parable here, we see a man, we see a man, a master who's extremely wealthy. That he's got so much that needs to get taken care of. He's hired this manager to take care of everything. And through some sort of channels or whatever, he's been told this manager is wasting his possessions. So he calls him in and he tells him, give me an account of what you're doing because you can't be my manager anymore. Now, the first thing we got to do is we got to stop here and we have to look at what did this manager do? We don't exactly know. It just says he was wasting the possessions. I think he must have still been fairly trustworthy Because we see that he doesn't get to keep his job, but he's not fired on the spot, which I think is weird, right? Maybe you've been a part of a downsizing where they tell you you've got two weeks left and then we're going to fire you. But in my experience, most of the time, if you're fired, that's your last day. Now, they might give you a severance. They might give you some pay as just a thank you for how long you've worked there, but you're done working. Because they have no clue what you're going to do. And I think you see the master here makes that mistake. He trusts the guy. And he said, hey, give me an account and then go on your way. I remember when I used to do all the scheduling at Yoder's, I used to do it a week or two in advance. I'd try to get it two weeks out if I could. And every once in a while, my boss would come up to me and say, hey, this person's getting let go. You can't put them on the schedule. And I'd be like, okay, well, how am I supposed to do that without them looking at the schedule and all of a sudden they're not on it? And he'd say, well, you just, you can't hang it. We can't put the schedule up. So I would have to hold off because they would try to let them go later on in the week because that was less shifts you'd have to cover. You don't want to fire somebody on Monday because now you have to cover all of their shifts. So you wait till Friday, you wait till Saturday. And so I just had to sit there knowing this person was going to get fired and just wait until it was done because they're not going to ask you to come back in. I would assume if I was let go from the church that you as a church wouldn't sit there and say, you know what, we want you to keep teaching the kids though. 
Like we want you to continue to teach, teach the kids on Wednesday night. I would hope maybe you have enough trust in me at that point, but there's still this fear of, well, Ryan's got nothing holding him back anymore. He can say whatever he wants. So that's a, a kind of a mistake we see the manager make. So the manager or the master make. So we see him tell the manager, give me an account and then you're done. So the manager starts thinking. He starts worrying. He does like all of us would do. And he starts thinking, how am I going to, how am I going to take care of my family? How am I going to work? How am I going to make any money? What am I going to do? And so he starts trying to think through these. And I think this is one of the things I love about parables is it's not a true story. This is not a word for word. This actually happened. But there's details that are put into the parable that make it feel like it's real. And you see that where you see the manager say, what am I going to do? First thing he says is, I'm not strong enough to dig. And I think that's funny because he could say, well, I don't want to do outdoor work. I'm an indoor guy. That's what I've done for most of my life. He just flat out says, I can't do it. I'm not strong enough. And I know like even me and myself, if I was fired, I have immense amount of respect that people can work outdoors and do that type of work and do anything with their hands because I can't. I'm not gifted in that area. So we see this manager sit here and say, okay, I can't dig. I'm not strong enough. So immediately he goes to the complete opposite end of the spectrum of what if I can't even find a job? What if I'm homeless? What, what is going to happen to me? If I got to start begging, I'm too ashamed to do that. Like, I, I know I'm not going to be able to beg. So he's racking his brain, which I think most of us would be in this scenario too. We'd be sitting there thinking, what am I going to do? I know me personally, you guys just voted on me back in February to keep my job. And I didn't really have too much fear that I was going to lose it. But when you know that that decision is coming up, there is this little bit inside of you where you start thinking, oh, man, what am I going to do? Like if the church says no, what, what am I going to do with my life? Like I, this is my job. This is what I've done the last 10 years. And you have to start thinking through that. So you can put yourself in his shoes and he gets this idea. And so he asks the people to come in. This man is, the master has immense amount of wealth, so he's got a lot of people that owe him money. So he starts bringing them in one by one. He brings the first guy in, and he asks him, how much do you owe? Now to stop there, first of all, why does he ask the man how much he owes? He should know, right? He's the manager. He's the one in charge of the books. He should know how much he owes. The reason he asks is because he wants that guy to realize what he's doing for him. He wants him to say, how much do you owe? Voice that number to realize how much it is and then to see what great thing he's done for him. This guy's smart. He's thinking through every angle. He's thinking through how he can do it. So the guy comes in and depending on your Bible, mine says, he says he owes a hundred measures of oil. Now, if you have a different version, it might say something else. Down in my, the little footnotes of my Bible, it says that would be about 875 gallons of oil, which I started looking around trying to figure out how much is that. And it, in that time would have basically been worth, they said, two to three years of an average worker's salary. So not an insurmountable amount of wealth, 
but a big debt. If the average salary in America is $60,000, that, that means this man would have owed about $120,000 and the guy told him, just take $60,000 off of it. I don't know about you, but I'd be super thankful. I'd be extremely happy with what this guy's done for me. So he tells him, just quick, scratch it out and go. So the guy does. Brings in another guy and that guy says, I owe 100 measures of wheat which again, your Bible, mine does the same thing. It says between 1,000 and 1,200 bushels, which would be the equivalent of nine to 10 years of an average salaries worker, an average worker's salary. So again, a large chunk of money. Now this time he doesn't push the envelope quite as much. He doesn't take off 50%. He cuts it down 20%, which is still a huge amount of money. Now, there's a, a couple different views as to what exactly this manager was doing at this point. When you study this passage, there's a few different theories that have come out. One is the fact of he's not actually giving away any of his master's money. He, as the manager, had racked up some extra commission on it. So he's just knocking the commission off because he knows he's not going to get that anyway, so he's going to collect it later. Now, that could be a possibility, but... In, in my looking into it, they said the numbers don't quite add up as to why or how that would work out. He wouldn't have taken that much money. Another one is that basically his master was charging interest, which was against the law to charge interest for a Jewish person to charge interest to another Jewish person. It was against the law. And they said that's a chance, which it's a possibility, but we don't see much of that. The third option, and this is the one that I think leads more towards it, is basically the manager has just cost the master a whole lot of money. He's thinking forward. He's thinking pretty much, what is the guy going to do to me? He's already fired me. He can't do anything else. I'm still technically in charge of the books, so he can't, can't sue. He can't do all this other stuff. So he, the master's lost a, a lot of money. And I think when we read the parable, that's more what we see, is we see this guy has just taken off a lot of what the man owes. And I think that's interesting here because this is where the parable gets confusing. I think most of us could sit here and understand what this guy's doing. He wasn't good at his job. The master's firing him, but the master gives him a chance to look towards his future. So he does some pretty shady things to take care of himself. That would make sense. But then when you see in verse uh, 8 here, it says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Who here would do that? This guy has just cost him 50% on one of his bills and 20% on another one. And it says, the master commends him. I don't know about you, maybe you are holier than me. I would not. I'd be furious. But I think the difference that we can see here is the word commended doesn't exactly mean what we think it does. When we think of commended, we think of like, hey, great job. You did, that was, that was really good work. Almost like encouragement. When the word commended here is actually more of a, you got me. So my wife hates it when I do this, that when we get in a disagreement, 
won't call it an argument, a disagreement. And we both have our viewpoints and we start talking and talking and I hit a point where I realize I'm wrong. And I'll just look at her and say, well, agree to disagree. She gets furious at me because she's like, no, you're wrong. Admit it. You are wrong. And what we see here is we see this master kind of get there and just say, you got me. Have you ever had somebody just outsmart you? Where there's not a whole lot you can do about it. You were just, you were bested. We've had that with our kids before. Well, I'll say, you know, why did you do this? And they'll say, well, you said this and they can, they're like little mini lawyers. They can work all the way around that. I'm just, at one point I'm like, you know what? Okay, I'll give it to you. You got it. It was wrong, but you confused me. You got me. That's what we see with the master here. So he's not saying, I'm happy you did it. I'm not saying, but what he's saying is, you figured out a way, good. And then he says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And again, that can be understood. The master sitting there saying, there's nothing I can do. Good work. You outsmarted me. But Jesus takes it another step to make it even more confusing. He says, and I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. I don't know about you, but when I first read this, it looks like Jesus is saying, use money to gain friends. And I sit there and I'm like, ah, that can't be right. Use money to gain friends, like that's, that's terrible advice. If I told my kids growing up, hey, the best way to make friends is to buy them. Buy them a bunch of stuff, give them a bunch of things. You'd sit there and say, that's terrible parenting advice because those aren't true friends. So what does Jesus mean? I sit there and I think, okay, well, maybe unrighteous wealth means something else. Well, the word unrighteous can be defined as untrue, but what it means is it means money. It means things that don't last in eternity. Anything that doesn't last this side of earth is unrighteous. Now, it doesn't mean that it's bad to make money. It doesn't mean it's bad to do these things, but it's unrighteous because it doesn't get us to heaven. So what he's doing here is he's saying, use your unrighteous wealth, use money to gain friends so that when it fails, you, people are welcomed into glory. And I think one of the things that we need to realize here is who is he talking to? So it's, again, he's talking to the disciples, but he's talking to the Pharisees. So since we know he's talking to the Pharisees, they're defined as lovers of money. That's how the Bible defines them right then. They're lovers of money. So why would Jesus be telling them this? Well, there's this thing called Corbin. It's found in Mark 7, 9 to 13. Jesus talks about it. It says, and he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down, and many such things you do. So what Corbin was, was it was this practice in the Old Testament 
in Jewish culture that you would say, I'm dedicating whatever to God. And that was considered Corbin then. And since you were dedicating it to God, it was God's. The kicker with it, though, is when you dedicated something to God with Corbin, you did not actually have to give it to God until you died. So it was almost like your inheritance. Like nowadays we have wills and we say, I'm leaving everything to my kids or I'm leaving everything to this organization and all of these things. But what the Pharisees had done and what they had realized is if I dedicate everything in Corbin to God, I get to keep everything. So if my parents are in need, I just tell them, you know what, I'm sorry. I'd love to help you out. I have two houses. I have property. I have all this money. But it's God's. I've already dedicated to God's. And as a person, you sit there and you go, okay, well, how can I fight that? It's been given to God. There's nothing. And so they found this way to get around being wealthy and having all of this money, but not having to be giving with it. And so Jesus is telling them, you've completely missed the understanding of what this is supposed to be. Jesus is telling them, use what God has given you to bring people in the kingdom of God. Don't be one of those that says, well, I'll hold on to it. They were, they were saying, well, I'll dedicate it all to God. So as soon as I die, it's going to go to God. It's great. But then they didn't help anybody out when they were alive. Even their mothers and fathers and children didn't leave them anything. But he says, use your unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, not if it fails, but when it fails. So how does money fail us? Well, there's three kind of main ways that you see money fail us. First one is you don't have enough of it. Probably a lot of you here that would say, I fall into that category. I'll give you a, a personal example in my life. If you know anything about me or anything about my wife right now, you know that we love budgeting. I, I've got a million spreadsheets on my computer for a million different things. I love doing it. I love sitting down and helping people budget. It's enjoyable to me. But we didn't used to be that way. We used to be more, like we were good with money, but we didn't, we didn't take very good, keep very good track of it, which was fine until we started having kids. Well, we had a daughter, and then 16 months later, had a son, and then 14 months later, had another daughter. So if you do the math, that's a lot of money a l very quickly for three kids. And we didn't, we didn't really sit down and say, oh, well, this doctor bill came, and it's $600. We should figure out where that $600 is going to come from. We just always said, okay, well, here, we'll pay it. And all of a sudden, we got a bill for our last daughter that the bill came. I looked at our bank account, and I said, we cannot pay this bill. I don't know how we're going to do it. It was a rock bottom for me personally. Because as the man, as the leader, as the spiritual leader of the house, I felt like I had failed. And so in that instance, I, the money ran out. So I sat down and I started looking over our budget. I started looking at everything. And you know what I realized? Life is expensive. You've got life insurance. You've got car insurance. You've got homeowner's insurance. You've got health insurance. You've got a million different things before you even get to the spending money that you can spend on yourself. 
How about you guys? Have you ever gotten your W-2s at the end of the year? You look at what you made and you're just like, what did I do with all my money? Where did it go? It fails you. It's not going to last. Second way it fails is you have so much money that you can do anything you want with it. Now, you're probably sitting here saying, well, one, I don't fall into that category, Ryan. And two, is that actually a problem? And it is. You see, that is one of the main themes of the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon is writing at the end of his life. He had all the money in the world. He could do anything he wanted. He had houses. He had wives. He had everything. And the crux of Ecclesiastes is meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. At one point, Solomon even says... He realizes he can't take any of it. He realizes it's all going to get left to his children. And he says he hated life. You sit there and say, how can you hate life when you can have anything you want? It fails you. Whether you can buy everything you want, it's not going to be enough. And the third one, which I think, well, I know every one of us fall into, you die and you can't take money with you. Money will fail you because it will not get you to heaven. It will not get you into heaven. It will not do any of that. So Jesus here is saying, use what God has given you here on earth for a good cause. Because when it fails you, you need to be willing to give an account for what you used with it. When you die, you can't take it with you. So we're going to come back to that in a second. But continuing reading here, these last couple of verses, he says, One who's faithful in, a very, in very little is also faithful in, very, in much. And one who's dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. So stop there for a second. What Jesus is saying is what you are right now, wherever God has placed you, is pretty much who you are. Yes, you can change some you can maybe make some changes to different things. But what he's saying is, is he's saying if you're the type of person that you sit there and say, Ryan, I would love to be more giving, but I don't make enough. I guarantee you, you will never make enough to be giving because you will always find more things to spend it on. You will always find some way to continue to not have enough. I've talked with so many different people with budgeting and all that kind of stuff that they sit there and they just have this idea of if I could just make more. And some of it's for good things. Some of it is, well, I want to be more giving. If I could just be more giving, I love to be that type of person that can just write a big check. That you guys stand up front and say, we need $10,000 and I can just write that check. But you know what? If you're not willing to give the $10 now most likely you're not going to give the $10,000 later. Jesus is saying what God has given you, if you're not using it right now for good use, why would I give you more? If I give one of my kids a $5 bill and they immediately go blow it on something that I think is unnecessary and has no value, how fast am I going to be to give them a $100 bill? Probably not very quick. Now, if they take that $5 bill and they do something with it, they give it away, 
they use it for what I think is a good cause, the next time I'm probably going to be a little bit faster to give them more because I can sit there and say, well, I see that they're using it for the good. It says, one who's faithful with little is, is also faithful in much, and one who's dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. See, the thing we see about this man, about this manager in the parable, is he knew what was coming. He knew he didn't have a job. He knew the money was going to dry up. So he had a focus on the future. Now, when we read this parable, if we try to push God in the, the realm of, well, he's the master and I'm the manager, we sit there and we start to think, well, is God not in control? Is God not? And it's not exactly what's happening here. This parable is used to show that people of the world get this. They get the idea that you use what you have to reach out to those around you. Now, this guy was using it for the wrong purpose. He was using it to take care of himself. We as Christians should be more shrewd in the fact of, I don't need to worry about myself. God's got a hold of me. Verse 11, he says, If then you've not been faithful with the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Now, this is the verse here that I know we've probably heard quite a bit. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I think mentally we get that. You've probably, if you've grown up in church or you've attended church for any sort of period of time, you'd say, I know I can't have both God and money. But our mindset is quite different. My mindset is I can still have pretty much everything I want and have Jesus. And that's not true. Nobody in this room falls into the second category where you have an endless amount of wealth. So at some point when you're truly following Christ, it means you're going to have to give something up. I'm not standing up here saying if you're wealthy, you're going to hell. It's not it at all. I know some very wealthy and extremely giving people that use it so much for the glory of God. But even them, at some point, they have to say, I could use this money on another car, but I know there's something else I want to give it towards. Nobody has an endless amount. So when you're truly trying to follow Christ... You can't have everything that you want. Now, maybe you've worked at contentment and you're content with your life and you love everything about it. And so you could say, well, Ryan, I do have everything I want. That comes through contentment. But if you're truly honest, there's probably something that you're giving up. Are you a younger couple that sits there and says, you'd love to help you just don't have the money? Are you a retired person who sits there and says, you'd love to help, but you need to make sure you have enough money to last you to the end of your life? I'm on a fixed income. I can't give anymore. Jesus is trying to tell us in this parable 
we know the end. We know we can't take it with us. We know that there's a value much greater than what we put on this money. But we don't always get that. We want to have a good life before we leave. And wouldn't you know it, God tests us because just this week, as I'm preparing this sermon, just this week I get a letter from a missionary saying they are in need of more support. And I sit there and I look at the letter and I go, well, my money is pretty budgeted out. Do I have the money to give them? Do I not? And it was like God just looked at me. He's like, Ryan, this is the exact thing you're talking about. Yes, you don't have unlimited funds, but you have no problem coming up with money for a vacation. You've got no problem coming up with money for a new chair that I just bought yesterday. You have no problem coming up with that stuff. And that stuff in and of itself is not bad. But what we see in this manager is a man who sits there and says, I'm going to use what I have at my disposal right now for the future. As Christians, that should be our viewpoint. I'm going to use what I have right now for the glory of God. I don't know everybody's budget here. I don't know where you're at. But I just know, we know our future. We know we can't take it with us. So be generous. Be generous in your giving. Be generous in your time. And be generous in your love towards others. If you do, I guarantee you will receive a much greater reward in heaven. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the blessings that you have given us, Lord, that when we hear unrighteous wealth, we, we think it's a bad thing. And Lord, it's, it's just something that you've blessed us with just here on earth. And God, I pray that we would take what you've given us, what you've blessed us with, we would take it and we would use it for those around us, that we wouldn't hold on to it so tightly that we never want to give anything away but that we would realize living for you means sacrifices, means we can't have everything, but we can help those around us. That whatever you've blessed us with, whether it's someone who you've blessed them with a lot, that they would be able to be giving with that a lot. Or whether it's someone that has been blessed with just a little bit, that they'll be able to be giving with that as well. Lord, we pray that this will be the prayer on our hearts this week. We thank you so much in Jesus' name. Amen.